come before you and we realize that we need you in every way. We need you to be our teacher. We need your teaching. We need your words. We need your ways. We need you to soften our hearts, to open our ears to your words. And Lord, we are so grateful because you are here and you are able to do all of that. And so we look to you to do all that, to be our teacher and our guide this morning and to use your words in our hearts to change us, to become more like your son, Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen. When I was 16, I moved in with my dad, and he was a Christian, and he was going to church, and I was not a Christian, and I thought church was weird. I thought religion was strange and, and confusing. But I did have a feeling way down deep inside of me that there was a God, and I had a nagging feeling that he was good because I had a nagging feeling that I wasn't. And I had this feeling, I didn't know what to do with this feeling, but, uh, except to distract myself. I thought, but when I would lay down at night with no other distractions, often I would lay there in bed sitting there with that feeling. And the best way that I can, uh, I can describe that feeling to you was a combination of fear and hunger. And I didn't like it. I, I wanted to fix it, but I, I didn't know how. But I tried. And one of the ways that I tried was uh, I wanted to be a good son. I wanted to make my dad proud of me, right? And my, my dad really wanted me to go to church and get plugged into a youth group. And so uh, eventually I did. Uh, and it was, it was good. And I was making some new relationships and some new friends. Uh, and it was the summer between my junior and senior year in high school. And there was a youth group summer camp coming up. Uh, and it looked cool, and my dad wanted me to go to it, uh, and he was going to pay for it too. So I, I went, and the teaching was good, the worship was good, the activities were good, the friendships I was making, they were good. Everything was good, but I was not. And on the fourth night, I remember something being taught to me. I don't remember what was taught that night, but I do remember being taught. And I remember being, it was very clear to me. It was, it was so clear that I just knew it. I knew, I knew a couple different things. One, I knew what it was, that feeling was that I had. I knew what it was, and that feeling that I was having was called separation. I was separated from something that was causing that combination of fear and hunger. And I knew that what I was separated from was not a what, it was not a where, it was a who. He was Jesus. I just knew it. There was Jesus, and I knew there was nowhere else that I could go to. I knew there was no one else that I could go to. But I didn't know what I was doing. Right? I knew that I needed to go to him. I knew I, that was the first step. I needed to go to him, and I knew that he was going to be able to fix me. But I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what to do with Jesus. This whole thing with Jesus being Lord and Savior, that was all brand new for me. And, and so I went to one of the youth staff, and I was like, I need Jesus, uh, and I don't know what I'm doing. And they're like, oh, well, you can talk to him. He's here. He's, he's listening. And so I did. And what I knew at that moment was also confirmed. What was broken in me was fixed. What was missing in me, what was lacking in me was filled up. That fear was gone. The hunger, the thirst that I had was satisfied. 
I was full. And, and later on, I, I discovered, I learned that one of the things that had happened to me at that moment when I went to Jesus and I put myself under his authority as my Lord, and I went to him as my only Savior and believed in him, I, I realized that I was, I was forgiven. I was clean. I had good cleaning on the inside. My sins were removed as far as the east was from the west. I was made new. I was made alive. I was made into a temple for God's spirit to live in me, and he gave me a new heart, a soft heart. And on that heart, he began to write his laws. And he began to start molding my heart more into the image and the likeness and the character and the heart of Jesus. And over the years, his filling and his fixing in my life continues year after year in my life to be confirmed. But it started with a need, okay? I was broken, and I couldn't fix myself. I was sick, and I didn't know how to heal myself. I was lost, and I had no idea where I was going. And when presented with Jesus, when presented with Jesus as he revealed himself to me, then I had a decision to make. I had a a question that I had. Then what do I do with Jesus? This is the ultimate question of life. What shall I do with Jesus Christ? This is the question that we find everyone asking themselves and others in the Gospel of John. It's something that the religious leaders have been asking, the Jews have been asking themselves and others both up north and in the south, in Galilee and in Judea. You got the Samaritan woman at the well asking. You have an official with a sick child. You got Nicodemus, one of the religious leaders, one of the teachers of Israel. He's, he's struggling, he's wrestling. What do I do with Jesus? the crippled man at the pool, the thousands in the countryside with the free lunch, the 12 disciples who are asked, do you want to leave too? What are we going to do with Jesus? And we come to the end of chapter 7, and the question seems to to come to this, this boiling point. There seems like so much division about what to do with Jesus. Now, if you remember, Jesus has been up north in the region of Galilee, uh, but there is a... Uh, a feast of booze or a feast of tabernacles that is going to begin in Jerusalem. And so in verse 10, we're told that after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Okay, and there's a lot of closed door conversations happening about Jesus, about who is this guy? I think he's a good guy. No, I don't think he's a good guy at all. I think he's leading the people astray. I think he's the Messiah. No way is he the Messiah. Nobody wanted to have open conversations about him because in verse 13, it says it was because of the fear of the Jews. It was the the fear of the religious leaders and no one speaking openly about him. And And then about halfway through the feast, Jesus enters the temple and begins to teach. Okay, no longer in private, now in public in Jerusalem. He goes to the temple, he begins to teach. And this is what we looked at last week with Pastor Scott. And the people are amazed at his teachings. And the people are also amazed that the religious leaders are not doing anything to stop him. And they start to think, well, I don't know, what what should we do with Jesus? Because if the religious leaders aren't keeping him from teaching in the temple, then maybe they know something. Maybe they know that he's the Christ. Maybe they know he's the Messiah. It even says that many of them in the crowd believe, this is verse 31, they said, when the Christ appears, 
Will he do more signs than this man has done? It's plain. It seems obvious. It, it seems right in front of our face. He's the Messiah. And everyone seems to be asking the ultimate, most significant question of life. What do we do with Jesus? It's not, it's not a question for us to ignore, is it? The right time to answer a question like that of such significance is today. The right time is now. Something is either overheard or maybe it was reported to the religious leaders about what the people are talking about and how the people are starting to believe in Jesus and the people are wondering, well, what, is the, the, what does the religious leaders think? Maybe they believe that he is the Christ. And so the religious leaders are confronted then head on, face first, what do we do with Jesus? And so they decide that they are going to arrest him. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. After all, I mean, he heals on the Sabbath, right? He's calling God his father. He's clearly in their minds deceiving the people, and all the people seem to be listening to him and following him. What do we do with Jesus? Well, let's start by arresting him, okay? And these were the Pharisees and the chief priests. This represented the ruling religious body at the time called the Sanhedrin. And under their authority were these officers. These, these officers are like temple police. They were chosen uh, out of the priesthood, and they were given orders from the Sanhedrin uh, to keep peace in the temple and outside the temple if need be. The Sanhedrin, then, they go to the temple police, and they give them orders. Orders. Go find Jesus of Nazareth, arrest him, and bring him back to us bound. And it seems as if those temple police, they're in the crowd as Jesus is saying these next words in verses 33 and 34. He says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. I like that. I'm going to be with you a little bit longer And nothing is going to change that, first of all. Nothing is going to change that. No decision by the religious leader, not the fact that that there are some temple police here to arrest me. My hour hasn't arrived, and until it does, I will be here with you a little bit longer. When I go, it will be a divine hour. It will be according to a divine will. But when I go, you won't be able to find me. You will look for me, but you won't be able to get to me. I mean, this sounds a little bit like a warning too, doesn't it? There's just a little bit of time left. Don't wait to come to me. Decide very carefully what you're going to do about me. Soon I will be going back to the Father, and I'm going to ascend to glory, and there will be those of you then who will wish for me, those of you who will want to seek for me, and, but it'll be too late. Right now, you might have convictions about sin, You might have fears about hell and the afterlife. Maybe you want your thirsty soul to be satisfied, but it's also possible to think, well, maybe I'll just deal with that tomorrow. I'll decide tomorrow. I'll decide after this season of life. But there will be a day, and time is running out, when tomorrow never comes. 
What do we do with Jesus? It's a question we should not put off. Isaiah 55 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. 2 Corinthians 6, indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Hebrews 4, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. But that's exactly what the religious leaders are doing. Because in response to these words, we're told that the Jews, the Jews, this is normally the religious leaders, The Jews hear this. They hear his words, and they're like, please, where could this man go where we couldn't get to him? Unless, of course, he's talking about going outside of Israel. Maybe he's talking about going to other Jews that live in in Gentile areas, that live in in Greek towns and in Greek culture. Maybe he's talking about going to to other Jews, and maybe he, he hopes that they'll listen to his message. Or even worse, maybe he's saying that he plans to go and teach the pagans, the Gentiles, ooh, and minister to them. See, this was unthinkable. It was it was preposterous in their minds that the Messiah would minister to Gentiles. And so they say this in a mocking tone. Now, they don't know it, but actually what they say is a sort of a prophecy because that is exactly the intention of Jesus. He's going to send his disciples into all the world and teach everyone everywhere the message of this good news, which is exactly why we get to be here right now. Thank you, Jesus, that your idea of preposterous is different than ours. Now, in verse 37, there's a scene change, okay? We, we fast forward a few days, and the, the Feast of Tabernacles is coming to an end, and in verse 37, it says, it is now the last day, the great day of the feast. It's important to note that there has been something going on every single morning of the seven days of the feast. Every morning at dawn, the high priest would get a golden pitcher, and he would go down to the pools of Siloam, and he would fill the pitcher with water, and then he would lead this large procession back to the temple. And on the way there, there's, there's all kinds of activity going on with, with joy and celebration. The ram's horn is being blown. And, and then when they get to the, the temple, the, the choir is singing the Hallel. That's the Psalms 113 to 118. The high priest then takes the, the picture, the other priest, and the, they, they march around the altar. And on the seventh day, they march around the altar seven times. And right before the morning sacrifice, the high priest then takes that water and he pours it out as an offering to God onto the altar. This was the pinnacle of the entire feast. Now, there's a couple of reasons for this ritual. One is that it commemorated, it remembered God's provision in the past to his people of providing water miraculously in the wilderness, like water from a rock. Okay, but... It was also, though, symbolic prayer. This was also looking forward to future provisions of God, which they needed. It was rain. It was a a prayer for rain, which they they needed for for drinking, that they needed for the the harvest. Without rain, that there would be, they would go thirsty. Without rain, there would be no harvest. Without the harvest, there's no food. See, the idea is that water brings life, and they're remembering how God provided it, and they're looking forward to God providing it. But this whole feast, 
This whole ritual of pouring water is pointing to a water that brings eternal life, pointing to the provision of God for the soul in the most ultimate sense. We are more than just a body. We need more than just food and water. Our souls need and crave living waters, living waters. So with this remembering of God's past provision and praying for God's future provision, at the pinnacle of the feast, with the water-pouring ceremony as the backdrop on this last and great day of the feast, then Jesus stands up and cries out, he says, with a loud voice so that everyone could hear his invitation. If anyone thirsts, you see the picture? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I mean, what a scene. You think about it. God stands among his people and addresses his people. If anyone is thirsty for the provisions of God, is anyone remembering God's provision in the past? Is anyone praying for God's provision in the future? He takes all of that and he uses this imagery to tell people, it's me. I'm life. I am the ultimate provision of eternal life and the provider of it. I always have been, and I always will be. 700 years before Jesus stood and said these words, Isaiah said in chapter 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And Jesus is saying that this thirst This is a need of your soul. And these waters, it's me. So if you have a thirsty soul, Jesus invites. He says, come to me and drink. This is what he told the woman at the well in Samaria. He said, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for water, and I would give you living water, and you would never thirst again. This is what we read in chapter 6 when he told the crowds that he is the bread of life that if you eat this bread, you'll never be hungry again. You'll never be thirsty again. So if anyone is thirsty, truly thirsty, does anyone have a combination of fear and hunger? Is anyone broken? Is anyone empty? Is anyone lost? Is anyone thirsty, then Jesus says, come to me and drink. How do we drink? I'm glad you asked me. (laughs) His very next words, the one who believes in me, to drink is to believe, to believe Jesus, because he's obviously not talking about physical thirst, is he? The soul has something like physical thirst. It's, It's like it. And the invitation that Jesus gives is for thirsty souls that need spiritual, eternal, life-giving nourishment because the soul that God gives us is eternal. And the soul which is eternal will not be satisfied by the temporal. We all have a thirst in our eternal soul and everything around us, everything that we can feel, everything that we can taste, everything that we can see and experience of the, is of the temporal world. It's of the finite world. And if we try and drink from what is finite, from what this finite world has to offer, then our souls will never come to life. Our, our souls will never be satisfied. The soul can drink. 
And this is to believe, to trust, for us to go to him and admit, Jesus, I am dying of thirst in my soul, and so I come to you, the only fountain of eternal living water, and I take you in, I drink, I appropriate your life to mine to satisfy what my soul needs above all else. And when we do, Jesus says in Revelation chapter 21, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. He is the provision and he is the provider. Only he can give eternal life. Only he can fill up the soul so that we're never thirsty again. But not only does he satisfy our thirst and fill us up, notice what he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Notice a couple of things. First of all, he doesn't say a river, does he? He says rivers, plural, will flow out of the heart or literally out of the belly. Refers to the the innermost being. Not only will he provide what is satisfying for us that nothing else can, but what he provides will overflow from the inside out to others, to the world around us, rivers of living water. It will overflow. It's like you're not a big enough container to hold all that he provides so that what he provides to you, it pours out, it it overflows, and it should be this way. Right? Because the blessings of God that he, that he gives to us, that we receive, they're, they're not to be hoarded. We're not to be selfish with these things, but we're to, to give them away. He, he loves us, and so we love others. He, he forgives us, and we forgive others. He humbles himself and serves us, and we are to do likewise. He provides to us living waters, and he satisfies our thirst, and, and we're to be witnesses of that to others, of what he has done. And the more we allow those rivers to flow, the more we will discover that those rivers will not dry up. When we give to others, we don't use up what Christ puts in. It's just the opposite. The more we allow ourselves to be channels, to be channels that God uses to direct his blessings to others, then the stronger that river will flow. What Christ supplies is an endless, bottomless perpetual supply. And it's no wonder. It's no wonder because John says in verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The living waters promised by Jesus is the gift of the Spirit, a gift that would not be realized in its fullness until Jesus was glorified which is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which he promised. If you're a believer in Christ, then you are given God's Spirit. He he lives in you. And we're told that he teaches. He teaches you. He guides you. He convicts you of sin. He helps you when you're weak. He intercedes for us, for you, on on behalf of you, to God. He, He provides us discernment. He gives us power, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my what? My witnesses, rivers flowing out from our innermost being to bless the world around us, to further his kingdom, 
to be witnesses of what he has done. And after speaking these words, look what happens. There is a division over Jesus. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. 2,000 years later, do we think that there's still a division about Jesus. That night at summer camp, my soul was was crazy thirsty. And I went to Jesus and I believed and, and rivers of living water began to flow out of me. This is what the Spirit does. One of the things that it did for me was to see my friends in a different way. I, I knew people. I loved people, and I knew, I knew people in my own life that were also really thirsty. And so the best I could, I'd, I'd pray for them, but I, I, would, I would provide them. I'd give them that water. Here, there, here's some more, this living water that I, that I, that I drank, and, and I'm not thirsty anymore. Try it. I still have people in my own life right now that I know that are deeply thirsty. And I will continue to give them. I will continue to show them living water. I'll continue to point them to Jesus. But but people are divided about Jesus. We see this in the passage. Some of the crowd believe. They believe that he's the prophet. They they believe that he's the Messiah, the Messiah the Christ, the Savior of the world. They can't help but see it. They, they hear his words, and they're, it's so obvious to them. They just know it. They believe. Others think that they know better. And they're contrary, verse 41. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? We know better. We know better, and there's no reason for us to entertain this thought anymore. There's no reason for us to look into it, even though if they did, they would find that he is a descendant of David. He was not born in Galilee. He was born in Bethlehem. We don't need to look into it any further. We, we know already. I've heard this. Others are confused. They, they ponder and they wonder and they don't know what to do with Jesus or what to believe. Verse 45, the officers, when they came to the chief priest, remember the, the temple police, they come back to the chief priest and guess who they don't have? Guess what orders that they didn't follow? They came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. We gave you orders. Why didn't you bring them to us? And they could have said, well, the crowd, you know, it would have been, it would have been real bad. It would have, been, it would have caused a riot. Or the, or the crowd was too dense. Maybe we couldn't get to him. No. Why didn't you bring him? Because no one talks like him. Nobody says the things that he says. 
Nobody speaks with such authority and with such wisdom and learning and love. No one claims the things that he claims. Nobody promises what he promises. They hear his words and they, they don't know what to do. They don't arrest him, but they walk away. They go back to the religious leaders. They ponder, they wonder. No one talks like that. What, what do we do with it? And then Nicodemus speaks up. We were introduced to Nicodemus back in chapter 3. He went to Jesus at night. And he speaks up, and he says, well, I don't know, maybe we should look into it a little bit more, right? Like verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and he was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Maybe we should hear him out. Maybe we should learn a little bit more and and reserve judgment. Let's look into it so we can better decide what to do with Jesus. Let's, Let's not be rash. Let's not be ignorant. Still others won't submit. They, they shut their ears. They, they shut their eyes. They can't stand the sight of him. They can't stand hearing his name. They can't stand the thought that he threatens something that they have control over, the temple, the law, the Sabbath, the feast. He's teaching in the temple, and people are listening to him and following him. He heals on the Sabbath as if he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He stands during the pinnacle of the feast, the pinnacle of the remembrance and prayer for provision. And Jesus tells everyone, this feast is all about me. It is mine. And the religious leaders, they don't want to relinquish control. So they reply to the temple police, verse 47, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities, or the Pharisees believed in him, but this crowd, ah, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And in reply to Nicodemus, are you also from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. If he truly is the Messiah, then we would have known it. We would have been the first ones to see it, but he's not. He's not. He's a liar. He's a, he's a charlatan. And temple police, have you been deceived by him too, just like all those common sheep, all that common crowd who don't know any better because they're so ignorant? Are you, Nicodemus, just one of those mindless, ignorant sheep? And so they think up the most demeaning insult that they can. Maybe you're Galilean. Maybe you need a mental crutch to lean on. Maybe you're weak-minded. You believe in Jesus? or you're beginning to believe in Jesus, I thought you were intelligent. I thought you were smarter than that. I've heard this. See, with all their intellect and knowledge of Scripture and their experiences with Jesus too, the things that they're seeing Jesus do in his miracles, the things that they're hearing him him, him say, in all of this, they are closing their eyes, they're closing their ears, they're hardening their hearts and refusing to look into the most basic and simplest things that would challenge their reasoning, that would challenge their control. Do you think that maybe 2,000 years later, people are, are still not wanting to relinquish control to Jesus? Still not wanting to submit? still wanting to find themselves in a place of power, leaning on their own understanding, wanting to pick and choose what they believe based upon how they think, based upon how they feel. What do you think the truth is? We hear this a lot, don't we? I feel like it's so prevalent in our society right now. 
What do I think? What do you think? What do you think will satisfy the thirsty soul? What do I think the meaning of life is all about? What do you think is going to happen after our physical bodies die? This is such a weak question when trying to legitimately discover the answers of eternity. What do I think? The Bible says I am but a mist that appears for a little while and then poof, vanishes. What do I know about things of eternity except what I am told from him who is eternal? Not what do I think, not what do you think, but what does he say? What does God say? What are the claims that Jesus makes and who he says that he is? What does he say that he provides and how does he provide it? And why are his provisions so important for us? And what are the consequences if we don't believe? What do we do with Jesus? We shouldn't leave this question hanging. Don't don't leave it to chance. Don't leave it to someone else's opinion. Don't leave it to your own understanding. A choice should be made based on what he says. So the question really is, what are we going to do with Jesus the Christ? What are we going to do with Jesus the Son of God? What are we going to do with Jesus who is the only fountain of living water? What are we going to do with Jesus who says, if you are thirsty, come to me and drink? What are we going to do with that one? What are you going to do with that Jesus? This is the ultimate question of life, and we should consider how we answer it very, very carefully. Very carefully. In one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia called The Silver Chair, it starts with a girl, uh, her name is Jill, and she has a friend, Eustace, and uh, they're at school, and they are running away from some bullies. And they run away, and they find themselves in this strange realm, somewhere between our world and Narnia. And Eustace falls off a cliff, and a lion shows up. And if you know the story, uh, the lion is the main character. His name is Aslan, and, and he is a depiction of Jesus. Jill doesn't know Aslan. She doesn't know the lion. She just sees a lion. She's scared, and so she runs, and she goes into the wilderness, and she falls down and she's crying and she's super scared. And when she gets done crying, she realizes how incredibly thirsty she is. And she gets up and she hears a stream in the distance. And so she begins to go to the stream. And as she gets near, she stops dead in her tracks because Aslan the lion is there right next to the stream. And the lion says to Jill, Are you not thirsty? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Well, then drink, said the lion. Well, may I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? And the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic, Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Uh, Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step closer. Do you eat girls, she said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Why dare not come and drink, said Jill. 
but then you will die of thirst. It's a little high. Oh dear, <laughs> said Jill, coming another step closer. I, well, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hands. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she'd ever tasted. Oh dear, I guess I'll need to go look for another stream. And Jesus tells us, no, I'm the only stream. There is no other. And Jesus invites all who are thirsty and their soul to come to him, to kneel down, to scoop up and drink deep from the only living water that is available to us. There is no other stream. If you haven't gone to Jesus and, and trusted him to be the only source, if you haven't gone to him to taste that, that first drink, that first quenching drink of salvation and of eternal life, that I invite you to go to Jesus. I invite you to go to him and at least just start listening to him, just as the temple police did. I mean, sure, you might go with questions. You're going to go possibly with some doubts. Maybe even you go to him with, with a different agenda. That's okay. Just go and hear for yourself and you will discover that no one speaks like him. The religious leaders are like, why didn't you bring him? We sent you to arrest him. And the police say, actually, he arrested us. No one talks like him. He says things like, I'm the giver of eternal life. I and the Father are one. I have the power to forgive sins. I am living water, bread of life, Savior, Messiah, the Son of God. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. No one speaks like that. So I pray that you, that you go to him and listen, but ultimately I pray that you go to him and drink. To drink is to believe, to appropriate Jesus as your own, to go to him and, and kneel before him and to tell him, I, I tried looking for other streams. I, I tried looking for the meaning of life. I tried finding water for my soul in so many different places only to discover there's a, there's a lot of mirages out there. There's a lot of dry riverbeds out there. There's a lot of desert lands it's okay to take Jesus at his word. He can be trusted. And he says he's the only stream, the only one we go to, the only name given to us by which we can be saved, the only stream. So are you dying? Are you dying of thirst? Then, then go to him. If you're thirsty, then trust him to be exactly what he says that he is. He's Savior and Lord, and I, and I can promise you from my own life that you will never be thirsty ever again. And that the eternal life that he gives you, it doesn't start when you die. It starts today when you go to that stream and you stoop down and you scoop up that deep, that water and you drink deep from the only stream that is for your soul. It will fill you up and it will pour out of you. You are not a container big enough to hold all that he provides. Many of you here, though, are already believers. But maybe you're struggling to be satisfied. Maybe you're struggling to feel that fullness, that contentment, 
that satisfaction with the provisions of God and the indwelling of the Spirit that is living waters to you, then I encourage you to go and listen to him again. Go and listen to him again. He says things to you like, I will never leave you. Do not fear, I am with you. Peace, I give you. He is always with you, always good, always in control. Me and Russ talked about it this morning. But sometimes our attention, it can be elsewhere, can't it? Our attention can be on the temporal, finite things of this world. Maybe you need to spend some time hearing things like this. He is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then in light of that and other things that he has to say to you, then ask, well, then what do I do with Jesus as my Lord and Savior at work? What do I do with Jesus as my Lord and Savior at school? What do I do with him in my relationships? What do I, what do, I do with him in my, in my neighborhood? Or, or what do I do with Jesus in my addictions? How do I raise my kids? How do I love my wife or husband? My thoughts. What do we do with Jesus as Lord and Savior while we're driving? While I'm out of town, while I'm talking with friends, while I'm in grow group, while I'm at a barbecue. But you need to listen. And you need to look to him with a mind fixed on him in all areas of your life. And be reminded that he is your living water. And that as your Lord and Savior, he is the most refreshing water that you will ever taste. If you're looking for sufficiency in all things, at all times, then go to Jesus and start trusting him with everything. Believe him about everything that he says, and you will find him satisfying. You will find him more than satisfying. He will fill you up, and it will pour out of you. You will find that rivers of living waters will pour out of your heart in every single area of your life. Father, we read that and we believe it, but we pray that you help us with our unbelief. There's, there's so much in our life. There's so many areas where we look and, at our circumstances and we, and we look at what is temporal and we look at what is fleeting. And we are distracted by these things. Will you, will you help us remind our minds, help us to remind our heart to not only believe these things, but to, to truly believe these things, to truly put our trust in you as the only source that could satisfy our lives, that there is no other stream. Help us to know it, Lord. Help us to believe it. Deepen our belief, deepen our trust. Maybe there's areas of our life that we are weak in. Maybe we're strong in that belief in some ways, but maybe in some ways, in some areas of our life that we're weak, then, then you know those areas. We know those areas, and we give them to you, and we say we need your help. We need you to do something in us. Bring us back to that stream to, to help us overcome 
whatever is going on, to help us overcome the doubt, to help us to overcome the distractions, and to help us go to you who is the only stream, the only one who has waters of life to offer us for us to drink. We thank you for being that for us, and we look forward to seeing you one day in all of your fullness. We long for that, Jesus. Lord, come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.